Okay, hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Culbertson, and I am joined again by uh, my most frequent guests, my beloved guest, Ruth Kenna. Ruth, thank you for coming back on the show. Well, it's lovely to be here again. All right, well, we are discussing today your book, uh, Anarchic Agreements, um, and I want you to tell us a bit about how uh, this came about and your co-authors, but first I'll just say this is a this is a seemingly paradoxical book. It is a book about anarchic constitutionalizing, how how you can create um, the, the kind of thing that it is claimed that anarchists cannot do, something like a polity, something like a, a group of people working together with, with rules and arrangements. I remember we've discussed the uh, Ger Philip Guerin anthology before on this podcast, and that's one of the first things he says in his introduction is, people say anarchists can't do this, they can't organize, but we can. That's one of his earliest claims. And now you are uh, trying to explain to a possibly skeptical audience how anarchists can organize. Yeah, that's that's right. So, um, I mean, we 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 use the term constitutionalizing deliberately because um, part of this, I mean, the the the, the book itself came out of um, is an ex extension of two pamphlets that were written, and those pamphlets were part of a bigger project about the relationship of anarchists to the idea of the constitution. And uh, in historical terms, I suppose we were interested in the way that anarchists had engaged with republicanism, um, as well as Marxism, but, but particularly republicanism, and what it was that separated republicans from anarchists, or where the, the anarchist critique of republicanism came from. And uh, one of the things that we argued was that uh, in, in the formation of the, the sort of liberal republican states in, in Europe and America, so post French Revolution, post-American Revolution, you know, the great promise of liberty, equality, fraternity, from the anarchist perspective, seemed to have been terribly, um, had fallen short, was terribly disappointed. Um, and they put this down to the way in which the Constitution had been formulated. Mm. So not only did the Constitution protect property, which then bred systemic inequalities, but it also relied upon a concept of law or the violence of the state in order to do so. So it was very difficult for, for workers to argue uh, that their rights were being trampled on or they weren't being treated fairly because actually they were being treated fairly within the law. So what the anarchists did was start looking at the ways in which the constitution operated in order to maintain uh, structures of, of, of class domination, race domination, uh, gender domination, and all the rest of it. And in doing, in making that critique, um, our argument was that they didn't throw out the uh, the principle of constitutionalizing, that is, of having declarations of principle, of having rules, of creating institutions, um, of having decision-making processes. They may have been more or less explicit than some of the written constitutions that the Liberals and the Republicans had, but the one thing that they didn't have was an idea of permanent fixed authority. And that was the point at which mm. these two traditions completely diverged. So what we're trying to say is that it's quite, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's not only helpful from a historical point of view to see how these traditions sort of emerged from in relation to each other, but our view was, particularly in the, in the aftermath of the 
the 2011 movements, the, the, the movements of the squares, the Occupy movements, and, and all of those things that were going on, that it was quite helpful to think about um, recovering this constitutionalizing um, tradition that had got lost within anarchism because it's so anti-constitutional, um, because it's a way of, of thinking about how to sustain uh, movements over time. Uh, and that our view was that if you can make explicit the sorts of principles that you're working on, uh, and if you can make uh, the rules and norms and institutions clear, and you can also build in um, processes which allow those rules and norms and principles to be revised and adapted, then you have a better chance of maintaining your, your movements and your organisations over time than if you don't have anything at all. Um, because in fact, I mean, without constant, you know, without acknowledging the existence of of of, of these things, doesn't mean to say they don't they don't exist. <laughs> what it means is that they become invisible, and that makes them much more difficult to revise. And actually, then entrenched inequalities and and asymmetries of power can uh, can seep into to anarchist or anarchistic movements uh, because no one's actually recognizing the fact that they're there. Yeah. Great. Graeber has been, has written multiple times in his book on Occupy Wall Street, the Democracy Project or Democracy, a project, I hope, whatever, the Democracy book, and also elsewhere about within this debate, he more or less stands on the less constitutional side. And he debated, especially with some veterans of the civil rights movement who wanted, you know, he quotes someone as saying, like, I don't want to be ruled from the shadows. And then Graeber's yeah. argument, which I personally find fairly satisfactory in this debate is you're going to be ruled from the shadows anyway. You know, I mean, we, we, we have presidents here in the United States and one of the games that you play is who is actually running the white house. Surely it's mm -hmm. not the person who is constantly cutting ribbons with large scissors and dining with Emmanuel Macron. There must be someone ruling in the shadows anyway. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to that to that argument that you're just displacing the problem by having an, an organization. I'm of course also sympathetic to the idea that people should be able to articulate what the project is mm -hmm. and have values that they can stand behind over time, which it does seem like has been one of the historic failings of the anarchist mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, 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 I enjoyed the, I mean, I've read the democracy project too, and, and, and we, you know, it was one of the things that, that's, we were very conscious of when we thought about this idea of constitutionalizing. And I suppose one of the things I found um, less satisfactory in the Democracy Project was the, the way in which David Graeber tends to conflate anarchism with democracy. Mm -hmm. So those, these two things become one, um, but they become one, obviously, in a, in, a, in a very sort of critical and oppositional sense, that what he's doing is, is contrasting the kind of democratic, non-hierarchical, participatory practices that that were were you know absolutely on display within some of those occupy camps he's contrasting all of that to the uh to the 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 uh the duplicity and the elitism of of liberal democratic systems and as far as you know that's that, that there's nothing to disagree in that but it seemed to us I and mean, one of the things that we did in the in the course of the project uh, was that we looked at the operation of three of the of the Occupy camps. We looked at uh, Oakland, Wall Street, and London, uh, and we looked at the uh, General Assembly minutes uh, of those camps. 
in order to, to think about the complexity, actually, of the, of the way in which they operated. And these, you know, and, and he, he outlines all of this in the Democracy Projects, and he's, you know, in a much better position to know because he was there. Okay. Uh, so he, he knew about, you know, the, the tranquility teams and the kitchens and the, uh, the, the way that, you know, the, the social media accounts were run. You know, they had all of these kinds of institutions. They had, uh, you know, shed loads of money, which they had to, 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 to manage and transparently. Uh, they had all kinds of, I mean, in London, they had all kinds of, well, I think in, in New York too, I mean, everywhere they went, really, they had all kinds of legal disputes that they were getting involved in because they were being evicted. Uh, they had, you know, multiple things to deal with. And so democracy for us, because it's such an umbrella term and because it tended to refer to consensus decision making, mm. I mean, that's how the book really sort of thinks about democracy. It seemed to sort of um, push to one side some of the other things that were going on in those camps, like the Declaration of Principles and the way in which that that declaration itself became replicated in order to, you know, to breed. I mean, it, you know, it spawned a movement. This was a huge movement and an international movement. So it was underplaying that. It also it didn't really sort of capture, I don't think, as, as well as we wanted to capture uh, the multiplicity of the institutions and how they ran, the different uh, norms that were introduced around those institutions and the different and, and complex processes of decision making that were that were introduced uh, that tempered consensus in some ways. Uh, so you had super majorities and all this kind of stuff. So constitutionalizing for us sort of in, in sort of was a better term to to capture actually uh, what was going on, the scope of the things that were going on, rather than rather than democracy, which tended to focus attention on a on a particular way of making decisions in a big group of people, in order to contrast it with you know the the corruptions of of the liberal democratic system. Okay, wonderful. Before we go any further, uh, I just want you to tell us who who we oh, is. We, yes, I'm sorry. Yes. So uh, the, the project started off with um, my colleague who's at Exeter University in the UK, Alex Pritchard, uh, who's an expert on Proudhon um, and has just uh, translated uh, or, or he's been, he's just introduced the new translation of Proudhon's War and Peace. Um, and the other person who worked on the project with us was um, Thomas Swan, who started off as a research um, assistant on the project. And then um, you know, we worked for, for many years with Thomas Swan and is a, an expert on cybernetics. And the pamphlets themselves uh, were co-produced um, with a, 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 an advocacy group called Seeds for Change. Um, and they were the people who managed to translate all of our kind of jargon and gobbledygook into uh, intelligible uh, <laughs> uh, guidance, if you, if you like, you know, because you know they're they're and they're, they'd written. A, I mean, they're they're well known in the UK at least for for having written the the consensus decision making um, handbook. Okay, wonderful. So let me describe the book briefly for people who haven't read it. It's it's very short. Half of it um, is not the pamphlets, but is rather a series of appendices, including some, you know, some modern day uh statements and guidelines for how to produce um whatever you want to call it an, an effective anarchist organization as well as some of the great classic declarations of mm -hmm. uh organization or association like the IWW the the beloved wobblies or Emma Goldman's of course Oshelon's democratic confederalism which hasn't 
gotten covered on this podcast yet, but it is it's coming soon enough. That that stuff is there, which is fantastic. Um, the second half was, as I mentioned to you, a surprise to me. I was expecting more from you and Pritchard and Swan, and all of a sudden I was reading Emma Goldman, which I am ne will never complain about ever. Um, and then the first half is, I thought, a very thoughtful and yes, quite readable explanation of the various issues that will come up if you want to organize uh, or put together or constitutionalize some sort of anarchist agreement. And beautifully, it doesn't give you any answers. What it gives you is lots of options, lots of <laughs> lessons learned from experiences in the past, which of course in some sense have all failed. I mean, that's one one beautiful thing about anarchism is it's always going to fail and it also you know, is always going to succeed as long as it keeps going. And I would, you know, I would certainly recommend it to anyone. It's it's yet another book, but a particularly short and easy to read one that can introduce people to anarchism. I often recommend one of Graeber's books or your book, uh, The Government of No One, as an introduction to anarchism. I haven't read Pritchard's uh, a very short introduction yeah so maybe that's another one i can add to the list but this one works and it's what it's 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 80 pages long yeah. it gives you guidelines for practices right now and a, a brief historical overview not of the theory of anarchism but a brief historical overview of how people have articulated the practices and principles they want to follow in their in their organizing so yeah. in that respect it's wonderful thank you and i, I certainly recommend <laughs> it to everyone yeah, the reason that we had the appendices was, I, I suppose, because we wanted to, we wanted to situate what we were doing in a in a, a longer history, but also mm -hmm. a, a, a continuing practice. So, uh, the risk, I think, from our point of view, was that you know we could come up with, uh, with what we thought uh, constitutionalizing involved in terms of of that kind, you know, the, the sorts of things that that that, that people might think about. If they're if they're trying to refresh their groups, or if they're trying to um, federalize their groups with other groups, or if they're trying yeah. to you know set up a new group, so so that's that's kind of what we we're trying to do. But we we were very conscious of the fact that if you if we just let it, I mean the the, the pamphlets are exactly just that that that's all that they do. And I suppose what we wanted the opportunity that we had in the book was to try and um, show that we weren't reinventing the wheel. You know what we're doing is is really extracting a, a set of um, yeah a set of ideas about you know how to how to to constitutionalize uh, and show that this is this is actually this, this speaks to what people have done within the in the movement for for many many years. Okay, good, wonderful. I guess now um, there's a few other things I want to talk about, but I'm gonna, uh, I guess, go into a slightly critical mode. Um, although it's, it's it's not from the book, you know. There's uh, there's a anarchist Facebook group that I was a member of for a while that I've since left. Uh, I don't know, is it Yuri or Uri Gordon? Uri mm -hmm. Gordon, you know, is one of the moderators of, and one of the things it says it has a pretty short declaration of principles, and one of the things it says is. Um, you know, this is for whatever real anarchism, nationalist and capitalist imposters are not allowed. Now, I happen to agree with David Graeber that it would be wonderful if the U.S. government provided a, a universal basic income to all of its 
citizens. Um, and I would support this as he does in the name of in the name of anarchism. And every time I would see that little thing, nationalist and capitalist imposters not allowed, I would think, you know, I'm pretty sure they would let me post that I agree with Graeber that there should be a US government run universal basic income. But actually by the letter of the law, that would make me not just a nationalist, but also a capitalist imposter. And then it seems to be that then again, this is sort of where I started with the with the question that I'm pushing on is you've got unwritten rules, mm -hmm. even within the reading of the of the written rules. And oh my God, Ruth, if we then had some sort of process where we wrote down the unwritten rules, wouldn't it just extend into infinity? That's always the danger that I'm yeah. that I'm worried about with this sort of project. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, my answer to that is it's it's the same as the as the answer about you know what happens if in the the course of um, of a of a project uh, you know you have changes of membership, you have new people coming in, uh, and you know sometimes that that churn uh, itself exposes practices that seem to be dominating that had never imagined been imagined as being. Uh, in any way problematic by the people who set the group up um, and that creates attention and and I guess one of the things that anarchist constitutionalizing is about is recognizing that those tensions are always latent mm -hmm. and, and therefore have to be addressed and one of the things that 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 dogs a lot of, of anarchist movements is that when those tensions become uh, recognized actually what what can easily happen is that that groups themselves splinter mm -hmm. um, and they don't survive so what we're trying to to do is to to say well you know if you acknowledge that there's there's never any um any end to the possibility of of domination uh you know in in that sense i agree with you you know all of these things are going to fail the question in terms of of organizing capacity is how far we let that failure that theoretical failure uh actually impact on on our capability to to express and articulate anarchist ideas in a world that's very unfriendly to them mm -hmm. so you know uh, so of course you know when you set up any group you're you're going to be doing it from the perspective of you know you are of like mind but you don't know what the like mind is until you talk about it if you just assume there's a problem yeah. I, I suspect that you know that the 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 uh you know no nationalists no no um capitalists oh i i'm pretty sure i know what he means yeah, I yeah just, I mean, uh, but... So, but you know but the basic income idea doesn't i mean you know that i mean that's debatable i guess but you know if if you're if it's directed against anarcho capitalism if that if that you know banner if you like is directed against that i'm sure i'm sure and then basic income actually puts you on the the right side of yeah. anarcho capitalism right yeah. uh, as opposed to the uh the non-interference limited state uh position that 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 right libertarians tend to to justify Oh, I'm com I'm confident that you that you and I and Uriah all agree on this, but I could also, you know, depending on who is who is reading that little line and what presuppositions they come in, precisely as you say, we're all bringing this set of assumptions. And when Graeber yeah. advocates for that, I think it's in bullshit jobs. He does take some time to say, I understand that a state-run project based on money 
could easily be seen as problematic from an anarchist perspective. So that t that tension yeah. is there, and I think that's precisely the kind of productive tension that a constitutionalization process needs to be flexible enough, precisely as you have articulated, to yeah. continue this ongoing project. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's, it just it reminds me. I mean, one of the arguments that that erupted quite early on in the. Uh, the London Occupy camp was whether a banner um, saying that the camp was anti-capitalist would be displayed. And the decision yeah. in the end was because there were objections that it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and but that's all in the in the context, actually, of, of a, you know, a general consensus about the elitism of the of the, the, the political and economic system. Uh, yeah. But but how far people think you know, you know so what do we mean by capitalism and, and they didn't have that discussion as far as I know well at least not within the general assembly but but the the wording is important that I mean there was equally uh, discussions about religion um, mm. and 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 faith so so these these are the kinds of issues that you know if you want to, to I mean you know in the end of because you know the police catch catch up with the camp and they evict people anyway um, but had that occupation been able to last, then these are the things mm -hmm. that would have had to have been discussed. Yeah. And yeah, it, did, it did struck me. It did strike me. Uh, one of the things you included in the book was the um, safer spaces policy uh, of, of Occupy London. And one of the things it stated is like, you know, no racism will be allowed, which I, uh, this is, this is one of the places where I'm always skeptical. This is something in, in the U.S., um, whatever you want to call them, the mainstream left, the progressives, whatever, they'll always say, like, I believe in free speech except for racism. It's like, well, you know, James Baldwin said that Richard Wright's native son was a racist work. So depending on who you're listening to, you're talking about banning native son. Like, this, sure, let's all ban racism, fine. It seems to be precisely that the anarchist movement should be there to say, actually, you know, racism is not a, a thing that's always obvious what it is and where we should draw the line hilariously to me further down this gets precisely to the anti-capitalist banner they say there should be no discrimination by you know creed or ethnicity or whatever and no discrimination by class which i assume they mean you should not look down upon the working poor homeless and unhoused people that sort of thing uh, but reading that, I thought, oh, I thought the, I thought discrimination based on class was the whole point of Occupy Wall Street. I thought we were discriminating against the one percent with, uh, with extreme prejudice. wasn't Wasn't that the whole project? And that again seems like something that the, is another I, another tension. It is a tension, and I think in in you know for me, uh, the tension comes down to something you know really fundamental about how how you understand. Um, you know, anarchy and anarchism, you know, so if we're talking about constitutionalizing anarchistically, who are we talking to? Are we just talking to people who are signed up uh, to to sets of ideas that that we, you know, more or less share? Or are we talking to people who don't think at all that they're anarchist, but mm. who we would want to make, have a conversation with in order to persuade them that actually this way of organizing is better than the alternative? Mm -hmm. um, and and that's I think where we're where we're sitting. That uh, so you know in in that respect I think you know constitutionalizing speaks to a broader practice of anarchic agreement as opposed to 
a guide on how you set up an anarchist group. Mm -hmm. And these two things are different in my head. I think that's, that's a wonderful distinction. Can you Do you want to take a second and expand on that a bit? Because I think that's a crucial so, idea. So one of the one of the leads I take is from is from Kropotkin's um, entry in the the um, Encyclopedia Britannica, where he talks precisely about these two things. He talks first about an anti-authoritarian tendency, which has no particular history. Uh, it has no particular root. It can be found anywhere you look. And then he says, and, and look what happened in Europe at, you know, around between sometime between 1864 and 1871. Um, I'm not just in Europe, but primarily in Europe. We have this anarchist movement mm -hmm. appear. Now, you know, are these things the same? And I think Kropotkin's answer is no, they're different. And these arguments boil up again and again in terms of, for example, you know, what should the revolution look like? You know, and people scratch their heads and say, well, it, it, you know, doesn't it look like, you know, we, we, we did that in France in 1789. We did it in, you know, uh, uh, the Paris Commune. You know, the revolution looks like barricades and people fighting and, and then something happens or doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, and Kropotkin's answer is that, well, no, um, you know, revolutions are, are these messy affairs and they're going to take different forms in different places. You know, and if you're if you're a bit worried that, you know, um, uh, a revolution in Mexico doesn't look like your your model, then maybe you should revisit your model um, because the way people actually behave in the world anarchistically is not necessarily going to replicate the way in which you have assumed that anarchism is 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 destined to 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 function. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> that's that's really giving me something a lot to think about. I mean, I do think the the next question that opens that up, that that opens up for me is the question of whether what we are living in right now is a is a revolutionary world. And I haven't I haven't fully thought through this, or a, you know, a post revolutionary world. But I I guess I sort of accept the the democratic liberal consensus that that it is that without without barricades. The world of of welfare, capitalism, or social democracy that we somewhat sort of live in right now in 2022 is very different from the world that existed a hundred years ago, and in fact, better and freer and less colonialist and less imperialist and less all of the things that we want to get rid of. I I know that I'm opening up myself to like claims that you know I'm a a liberal democratic progressive triumphalist believe me I'm not, I'm not I'm not that but I do think that you know whatever you want to say the the intervention of people like in the US FDR and and MLK and the movements they led could be described as as revolutions and revolutions if not anarchist ones in the in the right direction this is something i'm thinking about because graber mentioned this also in the democracy yeah. project is are our revolutions going to stop involving barricades are they going to be more like thomas kuhn's uh scientific revolutions and if so how will we even know one has happened to just i'm, I'm sorry i should listen yeah. speak, but again i think us ubi would be a a a revolution no one would need to storm the capital but it would be a revolution from from where I'm sitting. So I mean, it seems to me that um, I mean I'm I'm more I'm more skeptical. I suppose I'm I you know I stand a bit closer to Colin Ward on on 
uh, things like welfare and the welfare state. And and his view was that, uh, and, and Nicholas Walter called it the same thing, you know, that, that when we're talking about the welfare state, we're talking about the warfare state. This was a trade-off. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what what the, the post-war state did um, was provide a certain kind of safety net, if you like, uh, but you know, on the basis that it was going to to reconfigure its own power uh, in this in this new global world, and I think it's you know I'm always interested when I hear on on the UK news, uh, you know, in criticism of, of of the Chinese government, but you know, which of course I'm you know no fan of, but you know, the criticism of the Chinese government is that after Tiananmen Square, you know, the deal was that uh, the Communist Party would would take the people out of poverty, but you know, in return, they just had to do what they were told. Mm -hmm. So there was going to be no democracy. And, and it's interesting that that, that 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 social contract, if you like, is recognised in the, in, in the regime of the enemy, but it's never recognised <laughs> in one's home. Um, and, and, and Ward's argument, and this is, again, I think where constitutionalising comes in, is that, you know, the... the the provision of welfare was based actually on the absorption, the state's absorption of, of local models of, of mutual aid. Uh, you know, insurance had come from what the miners mm -hmm. were doing in the Welsh valleys. Um, and similarly, you know, what the state was doing was just taking something that was, was bubbling up on the ground, taxing people, um, and then giving it back. So there were different ways that one could provide support, and mutual aid was his preferred model. But if you're serious about that, then you have to find ways in which you're going to sustain those local uh, those local services, and unless you have some kind of framework within which they can operate, and which which is transparent to those who are party to them, they're never going to survive. The state is going to always win, because the state can enforce its rules. Uh, and and so for me, uh, it seems that. Any chance of decentralising, any chance of of, of reclaiming uh, some of those functions, relies on being able to constitutionalise. I could I could not agree more with that. I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's the thing that is that is most frustrating about the world we live in. You know, obviously the fullest, the most socialist, and also in many ways the most capitalist version of this is you know the what's often called the nordic model and of course that nordic model especially in norway runs on extraction et cetera, et cetera oil um and it i i could not agree more with all of the critiques you've just made it does suggest that there's no alternatives that uh -huh. your choice is you know somewhere on a continuum from uh xi jinping's china to sweden and you know it's a straight line and you can slide that lever and and there are no alternatives and that means no uh local autonomous mm. mutual aid alternatives i mm -hmm. i could not agree more with that mm. i still think i mean i don't know the history of norway and sweden well enough to know if if they hit the barricades i still think there was probably something that i would be willing to describe as a revolution between 1800 in in Sweden and Norway and and what exists now, even if they didn't actually overthrow their government and and put it in place as an incomplete, imperfect revolution that does not. I mean, this is the problem with the New Deal as well. 
So, well, I don't know enough about Sweden either, but I mean, my my understanding is that the, the you know the Swedish model, which was you know um, championed in the uh, the sixties and seventies as a kind of a a third way yeah. um, socialism uh, form of socialism, um, has been rode back on quite significantly. It has. Um, yes, that that is true. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't exist in the same ways as as it as it once did, and um, you know, can you have? I mean, if, if the question is, can you have significant change uh, without without fighting for it? Um, I think the answer to that is no. But I yeah. think the 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 the, the manner of the fight um, clearly is going to be context specific. So I mean, it seems to me that one of the one of the discussions that's being held in in this country at the moment, largely because of the way that the uh, the success of the Scottish nationalists is actually about um, devolving power, mm-hmm. uh, and this is going on more and more now. I mean, it's it's uh, this debate has been you know been running for a long time now, and and uh, it's not going away. And that that for me is the entry point. If you want to sort of start changing people's minds and and rethinking you know how local how how the devolution of power to local areas might work then you and 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 again this is even being floated in the uk you can't just think about changing the political structures you have to think about you know the budgets that go with that i mean that's that's potentially quite a radical shift in mm-hmm. in thinking and and there is then a discussion to to be had i think about well so how far if you want to devolve power how far do you want to replicate your existing models and just make small ones mm-hmm. um and then and then sort of think that that's you know and just walk away and that's fine <laughs> and you know i think the answer to that is well no we don't and not only that we want to think about you know local local economies and we want to think about greening those local economies we want to think about making them uh less unjust uh you know that's the kind of conversation where Mm -hmm. i think an anarchist can then come in and say oh well look you know this is what i can bring to the table uh and and if then that provokes a fight okay fine (laughs) yeah i think that i think that's absolutely right uh it's tricky so in in the country i live in um devolving power has been understood since the very beginning yeah. as as a project of the slaveocracy like mm-hmm. the the only people who want to devolve power are the people who want to use that power to support white supremacy and i have to tell you ruth as an american it puts me in a weird position people talk about devolving power in europe and around the world as a left-wing project and in america if you say something like well i wish the i wish some of the smaller groupings would be able to make some of these choices there's an older tradition you know 20th century american tradition called laboratories of democracy mm-hmm. where this does exist but in the 21st century that is completely lost the the only people who are talking about devolving power are states rights quote, mm. states rights neo confederates but i i think that's just a quirk of of u.s history but it makes it very difficult to say because he says like oh well, i think uh the people of 
Virginia should be allowed to make some of their own decisions. And that's, you know, that it's that yeah. it's time to have a war. In, but, then in who, but, then, but then who are those people? Because it's not all the people in Virginia, of, that's for sure. Of course. And, of uh, course. And, you know, I think this is a question about where you think, you know, the enlightened live. Um, you know, and it's, it, you know, we have the same, we have the same sort of mindset, which I think was probably, you know, went some way to explaining why, um, why the referendum, the Brexit referendum went the way it did, you know, because there was a sense, if you like, uh, that, um, that the best decisions were being made by the, by people who were remote. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't trust, you know, you yeah. simply can't trust these these yokels yeah. uh, to come up with with the right politics. And, you know, for us, and, and that's always the justification for the state, isn't it? That you say, oh, well, you know, people might not, they might not be very liberal. They might not be very um, friendly towards each other. How do we deal with those kinds of tensions at, 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 at the everyday level? Oh, I tell you what, we'll just point a gun to their heads and we'll tell them they have to behave. Otherwise, we lock them up. Yeah. Now, the, that doesn't resolve the tension. You know, I agree. I just want to be clear. That's always the, the progressive yeah. justification for the state. There's also a right-wing justification for the state, which I have no interest in ever discussing i mean you know it's it's mussolini's justification for the state but yes this is this is the progressive project it is for their own good that i or people like me my enlightened class have to take power uh, -huh. uh away from them which is very different from you know jefferson's claim that the people of Virginia should be able to rule and by the people yeah. of Virginia he well, means he, white he means men with land who will support yeah. his you know, no. slaveocracy. Yeah. But it's it's just so infected in yeah. in America. That that line of thinking is so is so infected. I mean if you look at this recent Supreme Court decision about abortion, yeah. Um every right thinking progressive I know, well left thinking, every, you know, card carrying progressive I know is like, well we need more, you know, progressives on the Supreme Court. That's the solution. The idea that there are local solutions to this is seen as, uh, you know, a stalking horse mm. for the oppression of women, black people, and other minorities. Yeah. And in terms of American yeah. history, they're right. Yeah. But as you say, it's never been there's never been uh, any sort of democratic mm. um, process in these states in the, in the sense that you are talking about when you're yeah. thinking about yeah. constitutionalizing local communities. It's yeah. never happened. Yeah. And I think that that's the point, you know, because constitutionalizing is about the, 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 the principles and systems, if you like, that, that those who are party to them would agree to. Mm -hmm. So, in, in, you know, in that sense, it is a sort of, you know, it's based on consent and consensus and, 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 you know, recognizing different cultural perspectives and and being able to change things but it is fundamentally based on a, a principle of voluntarism and you know if if and, and the value of that i suppose is that you know who would agree to be enslaved yeah. who's yeah. going to agree to that yeah. uh yeah no it's so it's it's so obvious that these people are not the people in the u.s tradition who have been talking about states rights or whatever they're they're not yeah. Democrats. They're not anarchists. They don't want devolution of power. Sure, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, one thing that I did want to mention before we go any further is just for, for the American audience, maybe this day for the entire audience, I just want to briefly talk about the history of the word constitution, which really, uh -huh. you know, achieves a great deal of importance in, in the UK. I mean, I'm guessing, not a historian of this, I'm guessing in, in England, even before there's a united crown or whatever they call it constitution you know we talk about an unwritten constitution because we mm -hmm. so always think of it as a written document at least since 1789 mm -hmm. but all you gotta do is look at the word constitution it means the constituent yep. part it just yep. means the mode of organization yep. it doesn't have to be written you've written i think persuasively in this book that writing it down can help, and we talked about how that that will lead to a process of revision, which is done properly good, done uh, improperly will be an mm -hmm. endless bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah. But when you think about constitutionalizing, you just mean forming new ways of of being together, of working together, of association. And written documents now are heavily associated with Constitution, probably rightly. But Constitution doesn't mean James Madison writes something down. Yeah, right. It means constituting yeah. Yeah. A, a new association. Yeah. So it's it's creative. So we constitute ourselves when we when we call ourselves something. Yes. Um, and we Precisely. constitute ourselves with other people when we when we adopt a label that that that's, that we both accept that seems to, to to work as a sort of descriptive. So it's a it's a creative it's a creative process. That's that's the point about constitutionalizing. And and again, you know, one of the things that comes out of the of the the anarchist critique, the historical anarchist critique, is that uh, the, the two-stage process whereby uh, you know the constitution emerges from the deliberations of a council whose work mm -hmm is done behind closed doors mm -hmm. and by appointees who have, you know, you know, who knows where they come from uh, and is then sort of, you know, put to the people um, as if the people are one. Uh, that's <laughs> the thing that you're trying to avoid, um, you know, because that's that's the pro that's the that's the process, the very short process, uh, which ends up in a permanent fixed uh, rule book which is very difficult to change and which entrenches power in particular ways which reflect the judgments of those people who were locked in the room at the right time and the right place and who decided that you know this was the way to go um you know constitutionalizing works you know from the bottom up uh, it is participatory it's supposed to be inclusive uh and and it's it tries to to take the best out of the idea of creating ourselves uh, without saddling ourselves uh, with deference to uh, a rule book that was designed, you know, 10, 20, 30, 500 years ago by somebody else. Wonderful. I think I think that is a great place to end it, Ruth, unless you have, have anything else you would like to add. No, it's been a lovely conversation. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much. The book is Anarchic Agreements, and it is uh, it is out this December, I believe. I have that right. Just in time for Christmas. Just in time for Christmas. <laughs> All right, Ruth. Thank you for joining me again for another. <laughs> I guess I'm going to call this a Christmas episode of Everyday Anarchism. Thank you That's, so much. It's been a real pleasure. Always. Thank you. <laughs>